The sediments would also have killed the fish, as described in the Bible, he says. They could have been. The plagues of frogs, as he says, could have been migrating frogs, or the sudden appearance of the frog-like spadefoot toads from hiding places damp under soil after a sudden rainfall. Could have been that. Similarly, the plague of lice could have been merely the sudden hatching of lice throughout Egypt after the rain that followed unusually hot and dry weather. Because they don't have that in that land. The description of swarms of flies matched the behavior of dancing midgets. Midges, excuse me, which can sometimes be so dense that livestock have to be taken indoors to avoid asphyxiation, he says. Again, unusual weather conditions could have led them to the Nile. An abundance of biting insects would have also been led to the pestilence that caused the death of the country's cattle. Similarly, the boils on the human population could have been caused by insect bites. The fiery hail could have been large hailstones accompanied by ball lightning that something sometimes appears during severe dramatic storms. The locust swarms also have been caused by severe environmental conditions. And a dense storm could also have produced the darkening of the skies described in the Bible. But Professor Watton ducks out of explaining the most difficult plague where God caused the death of the firstborn. Perhaps it relates to some infectious disease. But why the effect on the firstborn, he asks? Well, he says the chronology as set down in the Bible can be explained by the probable weather conditions. But the impact of plagues upon religious belief was profound. It takes more belief and faith to trust what could have been than to just take God at his word. There's a website called Truth Saves. He says, did the event really happen? No, not really. The plagues were probably, did happen, but they're all irregular natural occurrences. Since all of these occur naturally in some point, there's no reason to think they were the product of God's wrath, and we also know the details of the story were very heavily exaggerated. Over and over. And he says, what they didn't tell you in Sunday school? Listen to this turned all the water of Egypt to blood. Although the water did not really turn to blood, it could have easily turned red looking like blood. There are two natural occurrences that would have triggered this story. The first possibility is the red soil of Ethiopia washing into the river. And the second is the event known as the red tide. Red tide is caused when a large amount of algae accumulate rapidly and release harmful toxins and discolor the water. In the cause of the exodus, the red tide could have very easily been triggered by the eruption of the Santorini. The volcano was 500 miles north. It could have been possibly caused by that. Egypt was covered in frogs. Yes, frogs. The contaminated water could have caused all the frogs to retreat to dry land of Egypt. However, the land being covered with frogs is not really much of a tragic play. This just goes to show that what was later described as an epic story of God's wrath, started as a less significant natural event. Three and four, all the dust in Egypt was turned to lice and swarms of flies upon everything. Well, the rotting corpse of all the dead frogs were obviously attract swarms of lice and flies. Livestock, cattle, horses, asses, camels, oxen, sheep were diseased. 
while the abundance of lice and flies, along with the contaminated water, rotting frogs, would spread the diseases to sicken the animals. Boils broke out and all the people of the animals, well, disease again will travel with flies, lice, dead frogs, and carcasses laying around. You can go through every one of these. Over and over. But here's the point. God did what he did to show the Egyptian people and to show Pharaoh that he is God and God alone. Were the ten plagues of Egypt triggered by an ecological disaster? Well, according to UNESCO Courier, while concerns about over the risk of new diseases emerging from the seas and rivers, one leading expert believes that leading expert believes that they may hold the key to ancient catastrophes. The ten plagues that struck Egypt almost three thousand years ago. His research suggests that the biblical plagues may have been may have been the result of an ecological disaster triggered by algal blooms, whose disease spreading effect is now causing growing concerns among scientists. And over and over, Dr. Marr's most ingenious explanation on concerns, the final and most dramatic of all, plagues the death of the firstborn, he suggests it is a direct result of Egyptians' attempts to deal with the previous disasters. Hastily gathering what little corpse had survived the hail and locusts, they may have stored the damp grains into silos. Under such conditions, the grains would go moldy and become coated with deadly mycotoxins. But my biblical tradition... But by biblical tradition, the eldest child would have received double rations of contaminated grain leading to widespread deaths among the firstborn. How do you come up with this stuff? It takes more work to come up with a scientific explanation than to just take God at his word. Listen to what God's word says. And can we just know this? The plagues were against the gods of Egypt. And Exodus 12, verse 12 says, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. Very clearly it says, the, these plagues are against all the gods of Egypt. And you will notice as we go through a couple of them, you're going to see very clearly that as God brought us a, a very distinct and specific plague, it, it attacked one of, one of the very distinct and specific gods that they were worshiping. The Lord also executed judgments on their gods, according to number, Numbers 33.4. In Exodus chapter 18, verse 11, it says, I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. And then in Exodus 15, it says, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord, And I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. Thy right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellence, thou dost overthrow those who rise up against thee. Thou dost send forth thy burning anger, and it consumes them as chafe. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Then in the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. And in Psalm 135, verses 8 and 9, he says, He smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into your midst. O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. And in 2 Samuel verse 7, chapter 7, verse 23, 
And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. And then he says in Joshua 24, verse 14, Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve you the Lord. Think about this in Exodus chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. It says, When Moses came before Pharaoh, he carried a rod, which became a snake. The court magicians' rods also became snakes, but Moses' rod ate theirs. The cobra, or unray, or uray, was a symbol of ruling power. The cobra, motif, is frequently found in Egyptian art. On the forehead of Pharaoh's crown, there was a cobra ready to strike. On the throne of King Tut is a coiled cobra ready to strike. So to overcome the cobra symbol is to overcome the power of Pharaoh. Say, well, is it, was it just so something, something so simple as a rod? No. And right there from the beginning, as the snake was a symbol of authority and power to Pharaoh, what does God use in the very attempt of, of, of demanding that his children be set free? A snake. Say, well, that's not so big a deal. I throw a snake down, or my rod down, and becomes a snake. Hey, Moses, that's not very impressive. My guys can do that too. Hey, guys, throw them down. They throw theirs down, but there's only one problem. Moses' snake ate theirs. That's a problem. But here's the deal. Right from the beginning, God is establishing in the sight of Pharaoh that he is more powerful than he is. And in the end... All these gods will be made nothing. The Nile River in Exodus chapter 7, verse 14 through 25. I'll not read it all. But the Nile River was changed to blood. The plague was against the God of God Happy, H A P I, the spirit of the Nile and flood, and giver of life to all men. The annual inundation was called the arrival of Happy. He was especially worshipped at Gebel Silsila in Ephelazine. The Nile water was transformed to lifeblood as Osiris. Uh, the fact that Nile turned to blood, which was an abominable to Egyptians, was a direct affront to one of their chief gods. Although the fish goddess was Hatemate, all the fish in the Nile River died. So once again, the river being their god, the river being their source of life, the river... God says, if this is your source of life, you're not going to have life. And what's he do? He turns the river to blood. And all the fish, the gods that they worshipped, this God happy, happy, all dead, gone, diminished. To illustrate the fact that the plagues of Exodus were directed against the gods of Egypt, we know some Egyptian prayers to those gods. The reference to nine gods apparently did not include Pharaoh. It may be of interest that there were just nine plagues before Yahweh killed the sons of Pharaoh. Listen to this. This is one of the Egyptian prayers. Praise to thee, O Nile, that issueth from the earth and cometh to nourish Egypt, that watereth the meadows, he that Ra hath created to nourish all cattle, that giveth drink to the desert places, which are far from water. When the Nile floodeth offering is made to thee, cattle are slaughtered for thee, O great oblation is made for thee. Offering is also made to every other god, even as it is done for the Nile, with incense, oxen, cattle, and birds upon the flame. All ye men extol the nine gods, and stand in awe of that 
that, that we might that might which his son, the Lord of all, hath displayed even the, even he that maketh green the two river banks. Thou art verdant, O Nile, thou art verdant, he that maketh man to live in, on this cattle, and his cattle on this meadow. The Nile flooded every year, making the land fertile. If the Nile did not flood enough there were there was famine. If it flooded too much there was famine. The Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt. And thus it became one of their gods. Heathen gods have, all, have uh, some connection with the economics of daily life. The, li- the river Nile was their source of life. And so what does God do? He attacks their source of life. And he causes the river to turn to blood, destroying everything in it. See, the plagues were not just coincidental. The plagues that God sent were not just, well, this is an accident that it happened this way. No, everything that God did was intentional so that the gods of Egypt would be looked like nothing and so, so that pharaohs would understand that who has the real power. The frogs, if you would look at Exodus chapter 8. Second plague here. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go unto Pharaoh and tell him, This is what Yahweh says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. And we talked about that last week over and over. The intent of God in letting the children go was to what? Worship God. That he might be glorified in all things. He says, let them go that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go, then I will plague all your territory with frogs. He says, your area will swarm. Well, that's exactly what happened. The land was filled with them so that they became objects of loathing. The frog-headed goddess called Hecht, H-E-K-T, played a part in creation. Hers was one of the oldest fertility cults in Egypt. But she could not control the fertility of these frogs. Through this plague, they became a stench to the Egyptians. The very gods that they worshipped, Hecht, the frog goddess of fertility, was made to be nothing. They loathed this god from that point on. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 16, look at this. Third plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, and it will become become gnats throughout the land of Egypt. And they did this, and Aaron stretched out the hand with his staff, and when he struck the dust of the earth, gnats were were on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats throughout the land of Egypt. The magicians tried to produce the gnats using their occult practices. But they could not. The gnats remained on man and beast. Was well, there any significance to this? Yes. At present, there is uh, no known link between the plague and a god of the Egyptian pantheon. However, the Egyptian missions were un- Egypt magicians were unable to duplicate it, attributed to the finger of God alone, and they withdrew. We see that down in verse 19. It says this: This is the finger of God. The magician said to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's heart hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. I mean, there's just some things that when God did it, it was clear that God did it, even to the unbelievers. This must be the finger of God. The flies or beetles, although it is not clear which insect the Hebrew word Arab refers to, this plague may have been against Kephirah a scarab-headed god regarded as a manifestation of Adam or Ra. It was supposed to be the god of resurrection, perhaps because the dung ball it rolled around 
and in which it laid its eggs produced new creation. Priests wore scarabs as charms. Or it may have been against the fly god. One sorcerer in the new kingdom threatened, I will enter your body as a fly and see your body from the inside. As a symbol of bravery, soldiers who had proven themselves were decorated with a golden fly. Coincidence? No. God took their god, small g, and made them to look like nothing. How about in Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 through 7? I'll not read the entire passage for time's sake. The fifth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go unto Pharaoh and say to him, This is what Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go and keep holding them, then the Lord's hand will bring a severe plague against your livestock in the field, the horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all the Israelites own will die. And the Lord set a time. Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the Lord did this the next day. The moraine or anthrax, the judgment was against the bull god, revered as early as the archaic period. The sacred cattle of Hathor, the cow-headed love goddess. It was a special reproach to Pharaoh who worshipped Hathor. Hathor, whose name means house of Horus, was sacred as early as the old kingdom. Other gods associated with the cattle were Ptah and Ammon. Great cemeteries of embalmed cattle have been excavated. The symbol of the bull was a symbol of Pharaoh himself. In the hymn to Ammon, it is difficult to distinguish a Pharaoh from the bull. The title is Adoration of Amunri. Baal of Heliopolis, chiefest of all gods, the good god, the beloved, the giver of, gives of life to all that warm, all that is warm, to every uh, good herd. Over and over, once again, he attacked every god that the Egyptians worshipped. It says, Praise be to thee, Amun-Ra, Lord of Karnak, who presideth in Thebes. Bull of his mother, the first in his field, wide of stride, first in upper Egypt, greatest of heaven, eldest of earth, Lord of what existeth, who abideth in all things, unique in the nature among the gods, goodly bull of the nine gods, chiefest of all gods, Lord of truth, father of the gods who make mankind a created beast. Over and over, the gods that the Egyptians worshipped, were made to be nothing. Boils, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 8. He says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of the furnace soot, and Moses is to throw it towards heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over all the entire land of Egypt. It will become festering boils of man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. So they took furnace soot and stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it towards heaven, and it became festering boils on man and beast. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the, for the Egyptians, I'm sorry, for, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and did not listen to them, as the Lord had told Moses. Boils against the gods of healing. Imhotep, an outstanding nobleman of the old kingdom, Although not actually defied until later the time of the Exodus, he was no doubt revered at this time, but he could do nothing to help the Egyptians. And the goddess Sekhmet was also known for her healing ability, but their gods proved to be worthless during this time. 
Just a couple more. Exodus 9, verse 13. The seventh plague. The Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. Tell him, This is what Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. Otherwise, I'm going to send all the, my plagues against you. Your officials, your people, then you will know that there is not one like me in all the earth. By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and the people with a plague, and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I have left, let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to take, make my name known in all the, tr- or the earth. You are still acting arrogantly against my people by not letting them go. Hail, the sky goddess Nut was the mother of the sun god Ra, whom she swallowed in the evening and gave birth to again in the morning. She was especially culpable in this plague in that she was supposed to protect the land from destructions which came down from the heavens. But, once again, she could do nothing. Destruction of the flax was trying to, was trying because it was used to wrap mummies and to make clothes. Talking about the mention of flax in Exodus chapter 9, verse 31. And she could do nothing about it. Exodus chapter 10, grasshoppers and locusts. The locust-headed god was Senehem. During this plague, the locusts were so thick that the eye of the earth was darkened, according to Exodus 10, verse 5. It says, They will cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. That's a lot of locusts. One of the epithets of the sun god Ra was the eye of Ra. By causing the darkness while the sun was shining, Ra was discredited. Then darkness in Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the heaven, and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his land towards heaven. And there was thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. One person could not see another. And for three days they did not move from whence they were. Yet all the Israelites had light where they lived. Think about that in your mind's eye just for a moment. It's dark over there for three days so that they cannot see each other. But over here where the Israelites were, they had light. How could God do that? He's God. One of the greatest gods of Egypt next to Pharaoh was the sun. The sun god, Amun-Ra, was the principal deity of the pantheon. He made all growth possible. Pharaoh called himself son of the sun. With three days of darkness, the principal deity was scorned. One of many hymns to the sun may help us feel their devotion to his deity. And here's here's what they sung to the sun god. Beautiful is thine appearing in the horizon of heaven, thou living sun. The first who lived, thou risest in the eastern horizon and fillest every land with a beauty. Thou art beautiful and great and glistened and art high above every land. Thy rays, they encompass the land so far as thou, all that thou hast created. Thou art raw and thou reachest unto their end and subduest them by, for thy dear son the Pharaoh. Thou art, art afar, yet are thy rays upon the earth. In all the above, many other gods could have been named, which were denigrated by the various plagues. But this sampling demonstrates that Yahweh openly and violently through his servants put every one of them to shame. And then Pharaoh, the last plague, 
The last plague was not only against the supreme God of Egypt, Pharaoh himself, but also against the future Pharaoh, his son, the very next God, Horus of Egypt. He was to die on the same level as animals, not as a God, for the prophecy was of, of the, that the firstborn of man and cattle would die. <coughs> Hymns of worship to many pharaohs have been found. Here's one to Ramses II. The good God, small g, the strong one, whom men praise, whom the Lord, who is the Lord, in whom men make their boasts, who protecteth his soldiers, who maketh the boundaries on earth as he will. They treated Pharaoh himself as a god. But when Pharaoh's family, their firstborn, was put to death, it ended the line. Concerning the divinity of the Pharaohs, William Edgerson notes, As for the organization and powers of the government, everyone knows that Pharaoh was an absolute monarch and that his authority rested theoretically on his supposed divinity. He is constantly called the good God. One of the most frequent titles designates him as the son of the sun god, Ra, and we know that his claim of divine parentage was not a mere figure of speech. It was meant to be taken literally. Theoretically, of course, the Pharaoh's right to rule rested on his divinity. He was begotten by the sun god Amun-Ra, who took the form of the previous king for his purpose, and Amun-Ra was the enthusiastic approval of the other gods placed on him on the throne and decreed a long and brilliant reign for him. No doubt those theological fictions helped to strengthen the Pharaoh's position. But the really solid basis of his power was in control of the machinery of government, including the armies and soldiers of police. A great majority of historical monuments were intended as official propaganda with the purpose of transparent, or transmitting posterity a correct position of the glory and power of the pharaohs. Crisis of revolution and the type of inner strife so common in the Orient as well as military defeats in foreign wars were either passed over completely or were interpreted so that the monuments conveyed impressions much distorted and unduly colored to the credit of the Egyptians. Over and over, God attacking the gods of Egypt through his very plagues so that he might be seen as the most powerful one. And that the gods of Egypt would be discredited and made to be nothing. They weren't just periodic, coincidental plagues. Well, I tell you what, let's let's try let's try let's try life, see what that does. Let's try frogs, see how that gets their goat. Let's try darkness, see how they maneuver that. It wasn't coincidence. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't chance. Every plague that God sent was an affront to the gods of Egypt. And the most most apparent God was Pharaoh himself. And he was made low. Over and over, God made himself to be great. In Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23, God told the Egyptians, Israel, my son, my firstborn, let him go. If not, I will slay the firstborn. And then in Exodus chapter 11, verses 5 through 7, and in chapter 12, verse 29, we see that the last plague was against the firstborn. God is a God of justice. He's a God of judgment. And he's a God of his word. What he says is so. As if losing the future Pharaoh was not enough, even the God of storms, Baal, Zephon, could not help the army which was pursuing Israel into the desert. In plain view of his temple, the whole army of Pharaoh was destroyed in Exodus chapter 14, verses 2 and 9. 
Baal of Syria was equated by the Egyptians with their god Seth. And the cruel sea was believed to be a manifestation of that. But what is Yahweh's purpose in the plagues? The first reason for the final plague was that the Egyptians may know that I am Yahweh God. In fact, look at these verses just once again, real quickly. Exodus chapter 7 and verse 5 says this. The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out to the Israelites from among them. Then in chapter 8 and verse 10, Tomorrow, he answered, Moses replied, As you have said, so you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. The frogs will go away from you. Once again, why did he do it? So that everyone may know that I am Yahweh. How about chapter 9 and verse 14? Otherwise, I'm going to send all my plagues against you, your officials and your people. Then you will know there is no one like me in all the earth. Uh, How about in chapter 10 and verse 16? Pharaoh urgently sent for Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against Yahweh, your God, and against you. Please forgive me, forgive my sin once again. Over and over, these guys are understanding that God is not playing games. He's a God of justice. A God who will carry out what He says. In chapter 14 and verse 4. It says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians, here it is, will know that I am Yahweh. So the Israelites did this. Everything that God did was to prove a point that He is God. And he wants exclusive worship of his children. The Lord is gracious in that he says over and over that he is doing this for the Egyptians, that they may know he is Lord. In fact, among the Egyptians, those who exercise faith were saved. And we see that in Exodus chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. There are a section who believe that, wow, this is God. And they were spared. In chapter 12, verse 38. Just as we today have an incentive to believe in Christ because of his miracles. So the Egyptians had opportunities to believe because of the plague. Over and over, God has a reason for doing what he does. Whether we understand it or not. Whether we agree with it or not. God has a reason. And his reason is perfect. And his reason stands. Another reason for the plagues was that Israel might know Yahweh, their God. The God is that there is no other gods. You see that in Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, that there is no other gods. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32, there are no other gods. In Psalm 135, verses 5 and following, there are no other gods. Some of the Israelites seem to have lost faith in Jehovah during their servitude there. Possibly they were impressed with the Egypt's gods since they seemed to be helping the Egyptians. But now Israel was the evidence of Yahweh's absolute sovereignty and superiority over all the other gods of Egypt. In fact, in Exodus chapter 10, verse 2, we read the Lord mocked the Egyptian gods over and over. Why didn't Pharaoh believe? Why didn't he believe? Why should he? He was a god himself, according to his own belief. If he believed, he would lose his own divinity. But God hardened his heart. Why? Because if he had repented and let Israel go after the first plague, all the gods of Egypt would have retained their greatness in the eyes of the Egyptians and of Israel. 
people had to suffer to demonstrate that all the gods other than Yahweh were nothing. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a question that comes to our mind? Why did, why did God keep hardening the heart of Pharaoh? Why didn't he just make it so great that all of a sudden he'd just say, fine, go? Because you have to remember, every plague was directed towards the gods of Egypt. And by attacking all the main gods of Egypt through the plagues, at the very end they realized that all their gods were nothing. They had no power. They had no ability to save. They were useless. And one God stands triumphant. God our Heavenly Father. Jethro summed it up well when he later said, Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. For in the thing wherein they dealt proudly, he was above them. Exodus 18, verse 11. Even Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, says, Now I understand. There is no other God. He is above all of the gods. Necessary in the plan for Israel's salvation was that they should do a simple, visible act. That was to take a lamb, kill it, put some of its blood on the doorpost of their dwelling. Egyptian symbolism is interesting even in this act. For the door was a symbol of both entry and defense. And gates played a special role in the journey of the deceased through the nether world. For Israel, putting blood on the doorpost indicated that something done in one's heart is not enough. They had to act out their faith. Pharaoh could have saved the firstborn if he had done that, but it would have destroyed the Egyptian system. In doing so, he would have acknowledged Yahweh as God. Furthermore, sheep were an abomination to Egyptians. And Yahweh's plan for salvation for Israel was not only to put down the gods of Egypt. God was calling out a people for himself. This was his greater and higher purpose. For Israel to be a special people to the Lord, they had to break with the associations they had in Egypt. Remember, they had been there for some period of time. It would have been easy or maybe even a choice of interest for many of the Israelites to say there, well, even though we don't like it, it is home. And yes, it's true that some of the Israelites took on the gods of Egypt. But the gods of Egypt were made to be nothing, and they soon saw that God was everything. They had to see that He is over and above all gods. They had to see that the lamb was slain and the blood brought deliverance, just as the blood over the doorpost brought deliverance. Over and over, as God's word is clear. Let's look at a couple passages in closing. First John chapter three. If you would turn your Bible there, Not sure where it's at. Go to the end of the Bible. Look back a chapter or two, actually two chapters, a couple pages, I should say. First John chapter three and verse eight. The one who commits a sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the devil's works. The works of the Egyptian gods had to be destroyed. Their image had to be destroyed. And he is above all gods. There is no other god. In fact, in John chapter 12, we were reminded reminded once again, John chapter 12, verse 31, Now this is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. As for me, I am, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. 
And he said this to signify what kind of death he was about to die. It's all about who Christ is. The other gods don't matter. He says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Do we believe that? That the lamb had to be slain. And the blood and the blood that was from his body would, would bring repentance and deliverance. In John chapter 1, verse 29. Says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's all about him and what he's done. I can take time to look at other passages. Acts 20, 28, Ephesians 1, 7. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20. Final thought, Jesus, or Yeshua, Hebrew means salvation, instituted the new covenant at a Passover meal. And today the family of faith partakes this meal as a sign of deliverance from the bondage of Egypt and from their gods. Luke 22, 1 and following talks about this. It's not just deliverance, but it's a deliverance from the gods of the world. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel both prophesied a new covenant which would include not only outward signs, but renewed hearts and minds. And anyone today can enter in this covenant through acknowledging Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The Lord distinguished himself from among the gods of Egypt. The Lord's purpose in the ten plagues is to reveal himself in the formula that you may know that I am the Lord. So that phrase happens over and over and over again. The Lord makes himself known by revealing his awesome power and therefore gives the gives everyone in this, in this story the opportunity to see how great God is. Plagues 1 through 3 distinguish between his servants, Moses and Aaron, and his servants of the Egyptian gods and the magicians. And although the Egyptian magicians duplicate the first two plagues, they cannot reverse the effects. And they cannot duplicate the third plague, recognizing it must be the finger of God. Plagues 4 through 6 the Lord distinguishes between his people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians. While the first three plagues affected all of Egypt, the next three don't impact the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived. Plagues 7 through 9, the Lord distinguishes between himself and everyone else. And in these plagues, he demonstrates that there is, one like, there is no one like me in all the earth. Therefore, the severity of the plagues is without precedent. In the tenth plague, the three ways the Lord distinguishes himself appear in the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn. Moses, the Israelites, and the Lord are all differentiated again. Moreover, the Lord executes the tenth plague himself and not through Moses or Aaron. The tenth plague is outside the series and unlike the other nine, has nothing to do with the natural events. Completely define the explanation that denies the power, that could not de- deny the power of the Lord. God is so powerful. I think sometimes we fail to realize that in this day and age that we live, I realize I just went through ten plagues and ten gods of Egypt so fast, but can I just say something? The God of the Old Testament that carried on these plagues is the same God we serve today. The power of God has not changed. He may not manifest it in the same way as He did then, but his power and his greatness and his ability is no, no less light lessened. He's still powerful. He is still great. And he still is able to save. Remember what he said way back in Exodus 3? He said, I am come to deliver them. 
And he said, I want something better for them. He said, I want to bring them out of this hardship, out of this land, to a land that flows with milk and honey. He said, I want something better for them. And can I just say, God still wants something better for us? You see, the problem with the children of Israel is that they were okay with, for at least a period of time, being content with where they were at. Remember every time something difficult came? As we, in the story, we're not there in all the aspects of the story yet. But remember every time something got difficult? Oh, we should have just stayed back there in Egypt. Remember this? I mean, what would you do? Bring us out here so that we could get killed? I mean, did you bring us to the edge of the water so that they could come behind us and attack us and kill us? We should have just stayed back there. Really? Was it really better back there in Egypt? No. But the problem is, nobody wants difficulty. I'd rather deal with the difficulty than to go through more difficulty later. At least here I know what it is. They had become very much satisfied with status quo. They didn't like it, but they were satisfied with it. And you know what we find about find out about Christianity today and age, in our day and age? We may not like every aspect of where we're at, but we're satisfied with it. When all the while God has something better for us. And it might take some work, it might take some difficulty and trial and hard labor to get through it. But God says, Listen, that's not what I have for you. I want you out of there so that you can come back to a place of worship for me. I don't know where you're at, spiritually speaking. But I have to always believe that God wants something more for us. He wants us to worship Him. He wants us to put Him first. He doesn't want us to be satisfied with where we're at in the things of this world. That much I know. You agree? That much we know. He wants something more. And he doesn't want us to be satisfied with what this world has to offer. And it's amazing that just because we're getting to that place where he's about to let them go, he's already attacked all the gods. But he reminds us too in the New Testament. In fact, it's in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and following. It says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in this world. For all that is in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. And what's he tell us at the end of verse 18? For all that is in this world is going to what? Pass away. If all we're doing is living for what this world has to offer, we're missing the point. See, the, Israel, the, the Israelites, while they're in Egypt's land, they had a God for everything. I mean, you want a God of fertility, a God of love, a God of... You know, blessing, a God of the water, a God of life, a God of the sun. I have a God, I have something for everything. Is it really different from how we live today? I mean, we got a car to go here, we got a bed to sleep in there, we have a nice house over here. We kind of make ourselves comfortable with the things that this life has to offer. And that's what they were doing. And God says, that's not what it's about. I need to get you out of there so that you'll worship me again. Are you worshiping God? Are your eyes set on Him alone? Are you satisfied in Him alone? Because everything in this life as we know it is going to eventually be gone. 
than what? I hope you've come to that place where you realize it's not about what this world has to offer. It's all about what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. And he says, just as he did with the serpent, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus Christ lifted up. Is he lifted up in our sights? Is he lifted up in our homes? Is he lifted up in our hearts?